Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 5 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 6. Careful with his arm. I think it's broken, Rebecca says. Rebecca somehow drags me across the floor as flames chase my feet. I look to the side and see Cooper his body convulsing from coughing, the fire creeping closer to his grease and alcohol-soaked overalls. Hurry, this place is going up fast, says another familiar voice. My arm slips out of my shirt, banging my elbow against the floor. The pain is intense but momentary as I slip back into darkness. 7. A splash of water on my face returns me to consciousness. I open my eyes and Rebecca comes into focus. Behind her, Cooper's diner is almost entirely engulfed in flames. We have to get out of here, I tell her. Can you get in the car? I sit up, lean on my right arm, and push myself to my feet. Rebecca opens the back door for the car, and I manage to slide in. She gets in behind the wheel and starts the car. We need to get you to a hospital, she says. Not here. We need to get back home, I tell her. Can you make it? Yes, and don't speed. I know, I know she says, annoyed at my continuing caution. She starts the car and backs over the cardboard I had left blocking our license plate. The only thing I can think of at that moment is what if the tires leave a tread mark that can uniquely identify this car. As we drive back onto the road, a shape crawls out of the diner, a body wrapped in red-orange fire. Cooper. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a car parked across the road, tucked into an overgrown driveway. I can vaguely see there is someone sitting in the front seat, watching the diner burn watching Cooper die. The other voice when I was being dragged out. Amy. She and Rebecca must have arranged for her to be there to watch her handiwork. I also know that if she hadn't been there, I might still be inside, burning to death myself. I'm both mad as hell and grateful. I sit quietly in the back seat, keeping an eye out for any other cars. There are none. I spy Rebecca watching me in the rearview mirror. I think we're okay, I tell her. Do you have any aspirin or anything? Yes, in my purse. Rebecca fishes around in her bag and hands back a bottle of ibuprofen. I take the bottle, squeeze it between my knees as I try to open the childproof cap one-handed. Do you need help with that? She asks. I think I got it. After a few tries, I manage to get it open and pour four or five of the reddish-brown pills into my mouth and swallow them dry. I put the cap back on the bottle. Do you know how to get back to the interstate? Yeah. She knows I have forbidden the use of her phones or a GPS device. Why don't you lay down? I think I will. My arm is throbbing. 
I slowly lower myself across the back seat, waiting for the painkillers to kick in. I close my eyes. Every little pebble in the road sends a twinge of pain from my elbow to the back of my neck. Rebecca turns on the radio. The music helps distract me from my injury and pass the time. After a while, the rhythm of the road slows as Rebecca turns onto an on-ramp and then quickens to a soothing pace as she accelerates down the interstate. Somehow, I fall asleep. 8. Rebecca shakes me awake. We're at the hospital. What are you going to tell them? I push myself upright, look out the window. We are in the parking lot for the emergency room of the hospital, a little over a mile from our place. I fell in the garage, bumped my head, which is true. I can feel a lump on the back of my head. You found me and brought me here. Do I smell like smoke? She nods. We both do. I try to think of something, some explanation. We need to go home, change. But Rebecca has a better idea. We were working in the yard, burning some tree trimmings. We don't have a yard. At your mom's house. My mom is out of town this weekend, visiting her cousin. Makes sense we would help out with some yard work while she's gone. That's something we do. That's good, I say, satisfied we have a plausible story to cover our tracks. Okay, can you walk? Yeah. The pain is now a dull throb. I let my arm dangle as Rebecca opens the back door as I push myself out. We walk toward the emergency room. I guess I should be grateful that Amy broke our rule about not being there, I say. The subtext is obvious to Rebecca. We were careful. You shouldn't have let her come. It was too risky. You can thank her for helping to save your life once we get your arm set, Rebecca says, purposefully bumping my elbow gently enough to appear as an accident, but hard enough to induce another piercing bolt of pain. As we enter the hospital, no one the wiser that we've just come from the scene of a murder, I think about all the things that went wrong, how incredibly lucky we are to have gotten away with it, how lucky I am to be alive. When will the luck run out? 9. With my arm in a cast up past the elbow and a fresh dose of prescription painkillers they gave me at the hospital dulling the pain, I follow Rebecca into the apartment. Hungry? she asks. I just remembered we never did get our lunch. She smiles, somewhat amused by her joke. I find it a bit disturbing. Not the joke, but the fact that she is in such a good mood. More than good, almost euphoric. Her phone rings. Hello? Yes, come on over. She hangs up. Amy? I ask. Rebecca nods. She's on her way. I asked her to pick up some takeout. When did you do that? At the hospital. She offered to help. I knew you'd be starving. I am. Rebecca puts out some plates and silverware. I shuffle over to the table and sit. Rebecca pours me a glass of wine. I hesitate a moment, wondering if it's a good idea to mix alcohol with the meds I took earlier. But at this point, I just don't care. I take a drink. Amy was supposed to be at her sister's place. That was supposed to be her alibi, I say. She was, Rebecca answers, matter-of-factly. She told her sister she was going to do a day spa, made an appointment and everything. She had to see it, you understand, right? Like I had to watch Vitaly die. I nod, then reach for the wine bottle Rebecca left on the table and refill my glass. You're going to need to take some time off from work. Want me to call your boss? No, I'll email him later. She turns on the TV. The weekend news is on. I half expect to see a story about a murder by arson connected to a local widow, or perhaps the fire we started spreading to the neighboring woods and is now a raging wildfire burning across three states. Instead, it's just stories about a lost dog, 
crooked politicians, and big-hearted musicians. The usual local fluff. There's a knock at the door. Rebecca answers and Amy walks in, carrying a couple bags of Chinese takeout. Rebecca gives her a hug and the two of them, happy as clams, take the food into the kitchen and prepare our dinner. I help myself to a bed of rice covered with beef and pea pods. Amy and Rebecca serve themselves some lighter dishes as Rebecca gives Amy all the details about her time in the emergency room. How the doctors were rude and the x-ray took forever and how she's probably going to get TB from the old woman who sat across from us in the waiting room. Amy turns to me and gives me a look of appreciation mixed with pity. You poor thing. I'm so sorry you got hurt. Well, lucky thing you were there, I say with a hint of admonition. Amy glances to Rebecca, who gives her a reassuring pat on the arm. I had to go, Amy explains. I needed to see him suffer. We agreed it was too risky, Rebecca cuts in. You agreed. We took every precaution. Rebecca has an alibi. She arrived before us and left after us, and no one saw her parked in that overgrown driveway. Don't blame Rebecca, Amy says. I would have been there even if she hadn't helped me. I was there probably about a half an hour before your first drive-by. Once the parking lot emptied, I got out of my car and hid in the woods behind the diner. I waited for you to arrive. After you went in, I went to the window that faces away from the road. I saw him take your order and then watched you pick up that chair and slam it into him. I think he saw me at the window just before you struck. He looked surprised and then confused when he felt the chair smash into his head. And at that moment I felt so relieved. I know what you mean, Rebecca tells her. Amy has that same look Rebecca did when she told me about watching me stab Vitaly in the heart. Then I saw that you were hurt. I caught Rebecca's eye and she waved me off, so I waited and watched. I could smell the grease and whiskey, even from outside. The fire burned so fast. I wanted to watch him burn, but then I saw you fall the second time, and Rebecca struggling to drag you. I ran around to the parking lot just as Rebecca came rushing out, calling for me. We went back inside and got you out. By then the building was burning so hot, I thought he had to be dead. Rebecca told me I should get back to my car, so I hurried back. I had a perfect view of the front door when he came crawling out. He was trying to shout, but I don't think his lungs were working anymore. You left about then, and he rolled over onto his back, reaching up toward the sky. Maybe he was praying for an angel to pull him up to heaven before the demons came to claim him. <laughs> but I didn't see any angels. I could see his skull as the hair and skin burned away from it. He stopped moving, but his arm stayed reaching upwards. He kept on burning. His arm was like a torch. I couldn't believe how long he burned. He was like a marshmallow in a campfire. Then the diner collapsed fell in on itself. He looked like he was lying in front of the gates to hell. Want to see? Amy reaches into her purse at her side and pulls out a camera. She turns it on and shows Rebecca the image on the display on the camera's back. They flip through a couple shots, laughing at something funny on one of the pictures. I stare at the pair of them, incredulous. Are you kidding me? I finally ask. Rebecca takes the camera from Amy, offers it to me. You've got to see this. It looks like Pictures of a man who killed your family and was killed 200 miles away while you were supposed to be in a different state on your camera. How are you planning on explaining that? Who else have you showed them to? No one, she protests. I just put them on my Facebook page. My jaw drops open. A second later, Amy and Rebecca burst out in laughter. Relax, I just wanted to show you guys. I'm not going to keep them. You need to lighten up, Rebecca adds. 
I've done nothing for the last few weeks but make sure I did everything to keep us from getting caught. And you bring the evidence of the crime into our home. We can't take any chances, none. Destroy them right now, burn it. I'll just erase them, Amy offers. No, I almost scream. Then pull myself back as close to calm as I can get. That won't do. A forensic investigator could still pull them off the card. You need to destroy it. There can be no connection between Cooper's death and us, or you. None at all. Amy turns to Rebecca, who nods in agreement with me, her lightheartedness replaced with a more somber expression. Okay, sorry. I'll do it when I get home. I drop my fork on my plate, no longer hungry. I hold out my hand. Give it to me. Amy seems offended by my obvious distrust, but removes the memory card from the camera and drops it in my hand. I stand, cross to the kitchen, and paw through a drawer looking for a pair of tongs. I find them, then remove the grate from one of the burners and turn on the gas. I hold the memory card in the flames with the tongs. It melts, giving off a noxious smell and a cloud of gray smoke. When I'm convinced it is beyond the ability of anyone to read, I drop it into the sink and run it through the garbage disposal. I'm going to go lie down, I tell them. Anything else I should know? Did you cut off his charred balls for a souvenir? No, Amy answers and adds. Sorry. I nod my acceptance of her apology and cross into the bedroom. I'm still hungry, but even more tired, and I manage to fall into a shallow slumber. 10. I rouse when I hear the front door close as Amy leaves, and the second time when Rebecca turns on the shower. The gentle caress of her hand on my cheek wakes me the third time. She sits on the side of the bed, wearing a white silk robe, one I had given to her one Christmas when we were still married. You need a bath, she says. In the morning, I tell her. It's okay, I'll do it. Can you roll over a bit? She gives me a gentle push, and I roll onto my right side. She tucks a beach towel under me and sets a basin of water on the middle of the bed, then puts her hands around my neck and pulls me toward her. My face rises toward her breasts. She smells of the lavender-scented soap she likes. Slowly, with great care not to disturb my broken arm, she unbuttons my shirt and gently guides it off my body. She helps me lay back slowly, then takes a washcloth from the basin, wrings it out, and wipes it across my chest, my shoulders, up and down the length of my arm. It smells of the same soap that she does. Once she's finished with my chest, arms, and face, she puts the washcloth back in the basin. With the same gentle deliberateness, she undoes my belt, unbuttons my pants, and wriggles them down my legs, taking my socks off with them. I'm naked now except for the cast. Rebecca reaches for the washcloth and continues bathing me, slowly, carefully. Her touch arouses me quickly and completely. She smiles at me, drops the washcloth back in the basin, and sets it on the floor. She loosens her robe and lets it slip off her shoulders. Then she climbs on top of me. Her passion is less violent than it was at the resort, but no less intense. I don't know where this woman was when we were married, but I am blissfully grateful she is here now. She knows my body well enough to guide me, along with herself, to the edge of pleasure and then back again several times before we finally climax. She falls on top of me, a human blanket radiating lavender-scented heat, tinged with sweat and the smell of sex. Our breathing falls into synchronous rhythm, slowing until we fall asleep. I realize that all my vows, oaths, and promises that we would never kill anyone again were in vain. I'll do anything for this woman. If I have to kill for her to make love to me like that, I'll do it. I'll do it gladly.
11. I wake before Rebecca. She must have gotten up at some point in the night because she's wrapped in the robe and sleeping under the covers beside me. I check the time on the bedside clock, then get up and go into the living room. I find the satchel where I keep my laptop, turn it on, and fire off a one-handed email to my boss explaining my accident and requesting at least a couple of sick days. I return to the bedroom and silently crawl under the covers with Rebecca. I keep my plaster-encased arm resting on my hip so I don't wake her. She still smells of lavender. The next time I wake up, there's sunlight pouring into the bedroom. Rebecca is gone, but there's a note. Call me if you need anything. Love, Rebecca. I take a moment to reflect on just how screwed up my life is. But considering I thought it was essentially over less than a year ago, I shrug it off. There's a knock at the front door. I sit up and realize I'm still naked. I try to slip hurriedly into my pants, but it's not easy with one arm bent in a permanent 90-degree angle, offering painful complaints each time I move it. More knocking. Coming! I don't even try to put on a shirt. Instead, I slip my right arm into Rebecca's robe, which is laying at the foot of the bed, and wrap the rest of it around me. I hurry into the living room and approach the front door. We have one of those peepholes that gives you a fisheye view of whomever is in the hall. It's a man. His back is turned to me, but I can tell he has an unruly head of shocking red hair, a description that fits no one I know. Who is it? He turns to face the door, looking directly into the peephole, as if he could see my eye on the other side. Under the hair are green eyes and a thin face framed by long sideburns. He wears a skinny black tie and a shirt that used to be whiter than it is now and a dusty brown leather jacket. Hello? Who are you? My name's Horn. Eddie Horn. I know that name. It's familiar. How do I know that name? I'm a freelance crime writer. I was wondering if I could talk to you about Anthony Vitale. Shit. The guy with the website. The one where I got the M.O. for the ice pick killing. Why does he want to talk to me? He answers my unspoken question from the other side of the door. I understand he killed your son. I'm very sorry for your loss. I'm putting together a book on the Vitale family, and I came across your story. If it's all right, I'd like to talk to you about it. I think for a moment. Nothing he said leads me to believe he has any interest in me beyond being one of the sad victims the bastard left behind. I unlock the door and open it a crack. You've caught me at a bad time, I tell him, showing off the cast. Oh, I didn't mean to bother you. I wasn't sure anyone would be home. I was actually going to leave a note. People don't do that much anymore. It's all texts and emails. Yeah, well, I'm a writer. A bit old-fashioned about words. They should be written down. On paper, don't you think? He reaches inside his jacket for something. A leather-bound pad and pencil. Like one you'd see a reporter carrying in an old black-and-white movie. Can you maybe come back later? I ask. He tucks the pad and pencil back in his pocket. Yes, of course. Listen, how about we meet for lunch? There's a place I sometimes hang out at down the street. The Ale House. Sure, I know it. Around noon? I don't want to bother you, but I'd really like to get your story. Normally, I like to be in the courtroom during a case. Reading the transcripts just isn't the same, but I was out of town during his trial. It won't take long. Sure, I tell him. After all, what reason would I have to say no? Wouldn't I love to get Nick's story out? Great, thanks. I'll see you then. He nods appreciatively, then strides down the hall, pulling his notebook out once again to jot down some thoughts. I close the door and return to the bedroom, searching for some clothes I might be able to get into fairly easily. I find a loose-fitting t-shirt and a zip-up sweatshirt that I manage to squirm into without too much pain. I take a large pill from my prescription bottle and follow it with a swig of orange juice from the carton. 
After that, I check my email to make sure there's nothing on fire at work. It's ten past ten, still almost a couple hours before I promise to meet him. I open his website and follow the link to his book on Amazon, a collection of true crime stories. It's only a couple of bucks for the electronic version, so I buy it and start reading. The writing isn't bad, but the subject matter is boring. I can tell he's struggling to find something interesting, compelling, or shocking about his topics, but they all fall just short. Embezzlement, road rage, and domestic violence can only go so far. By the time noon has rolled around, I've made it into the fourth case and don't have the desire to continue. Though I think if he does pull together a book on the Vitale family, he might really be able to do something with it. I find some slip-on shoes, laces are not a strong suit of mine at the moment, check my email one last time and head on out. It's strange to think that my story is probably the closest thing he'll ever come to a bestseller, but he'll never know it. 12. Horn sits at a window booth in the restaurant, with various scraps of paper scattered around, and a yellow legal pad on which he's scribbling what looks like shorthand. I walk up to him, and he waves me to the seat opposite him and finishes jotting down a thought. Then he gathers his notes, tucks them into a messenger bag by his side as I sit, leaving the legal pad out. Thanks for coming, he says. I nod. I'm glad someone wants to shine a light on Vitaly's crimes. Well, there's a lot more to him than just the incident with your son. He ran a money laundering operation at a restaurant his father owns, and there is more than one disappearance of a former girlfriend that is linked to him. I had no idea, I say honestly. They've got financial connections all over the country. He glances around the restaurant. He's even got a stake in this place. Well, then I'll be sure to walk out on a check. And he smiles. Yeah, poor choice, I guess. It's all right, I tell him. To be honest, I'd never even heard the name until... Right. Well, the old man was grooming him to take his place. He was made on his 18th birthday. I thought I heard his death was some kind of hit. Yeah, I had all the earmarks, except... I cocked my head curiously. I'm going to tell you this in confidence. I'm asking a lot for you to share your son's story with me, so I don't mind sharing this, but it's for the book, and I don't want it getting out. You have my word. What is it? I ask. My curiosity piqued. Well, the killing was made to look like it was done by a hitman who has killed quite a few people over the years. Someone who's knocked off a lot of Vitaly's enemies. So it was kind of weird that someone who worked for the Vitaly's would kill Anthony. I see your point. The thing is, the killer was definitely not the hitman, just someone trying to make it look that way. How can you be sure? I ask. The police always hold back a detail of major crimes from the press. That way they can weed out the crazies. You wouldn't believe how many people try to take credit for murders they didn't commit. Doesn't sound like a sane thing to do. Definitely not. Anyway, all the previous victims of this hitman, who I'm pretty sure is Mikey Manzanetti, but you didn't hear that from me, had a certain part of their anatomy removed. I cringe. You don't mean... Oh, goodness, no. It was their left pinky toe. The guy must take it as a trophy or something. But Vitaly had all ten of his little piggies, and there was no indication that the killer was in any particular hurry. Doesn't take long to snip off a toe, you know. That, and there were other details that didn't jive with the other murders. Little things like how the killer got in the house, and the fact that he usually helps himself to a glass of wine. But the big thing is the toe. I'm the only one outside the police who knows about it. Well, you too now. So what does that mean? Why would someone want to look like a mob hitman did it? Are you sure he didn't just forget or run out of time? Horn shrugs. Well, I guess the only one who knows the answer to that is the killer. What I wouldn't give to sit down lunch with him. 
I nodded, suppressing a smile. It would be just the hook my book needs to sell. But these mob guys are so tight. It's likely we won't find out until one of them gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar and the feds can make him sing. I do have my own theories, though. Could be a feud in the family. Could be a rival wanting to plant the seeds of discord among Vitaly and his people. Could be a scorned woman. Lord knows there were enough of them in his life. Well, whoever it is, Nick's mom and I are eternally grateful. If you ever do meet the guy who did it, please pass along our thanks. Eddie smiles at that. I will. I hope I get the chance, but I really think a chapter about how he managed to so recklessly kill your son and get away with it will be a compelling part of the book, especially now that it ends with his death. He picks up a pen and starts scribbling on the pad. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I have most of the facts of the case, but I want to know more about Nick, how you and your wife have made it through this. Thank you. I appreciate that. Nick's mom and I aren't married anymore. We've been back together for a while now. I guess the grief brought us closer. But we divorced about three years ago when he was in preschool. I'm sorry, he offers. I'm hoping to talk to her as well. Do you think she might be willing to give me some time? Possibly. I'll ask her. Thanks. I take a deep breath and then tell him all I can remember about Nick, from the day we brought him home to that morning dropping him off at school, ending with the day the verdict was read in the courtroom. He scribbles it all down on his pad. Somewhere in the middle, a waitress comes and we order coffee. Horn lets me ramble on from start to finish without interrupting, allowing me to tell the story my way, not trying to shape it to fit some specific narrative for his book. I appreciate that. Makes me glad I took the time to talk to him. Where were you when Vitaly was killed? He asks when I'm done. Excuse me? I sound a bit more defensive than I mean to. Is he asking for an alibi? Is this some sort of setup? Where were you when you found out that your son's killer was dead? I clicked myself. We were actually at a little romantic getaway place just out of town. We were packing up as it came on the TV news. Then, of course, our phones rang almost nonstop the rest of the day. It wouldn't happen to be the Sierra Winds Resort and Spa. Yes, how did you... I've been meaning to take my wife there for ages. Any good? Well, we're still making a go of it afterwards, if that means anything. The cabanas are relatively private, and if you can get past the kitschy decor, it's not too bad. I'll have to check it out. I put in some long hours, which doesn't go over too well with Melissa. We could use a romantic getaway. He puts the legal pad into his bag. Do you mind me asking how you broke your arm? Sorry, curiosity is an occupational hazard in my line of work. I looked down at the stark white plaster. Fell doing some yard work at my mother's house. I feel like one of those people you hear about who trip and break a hip. Not fun getting old. I hear ya, he adds. Well, again, I really appreciate your time. And if your ex, maybe not so ex-wife, would like to chat, he says with a smile, I'd love to get her point of view too. He hands me a card. The font looks like what would come out of an old typewriter. I don't have a cell phone, but you can leave a message at that number. No cell phone? I ask. I would think someone like you would want to be connected and available all the time. Well, it wasn't so long ago that people didn't have electronic leashes in their pockets. I don't even have a computer. The email address on the card gets converted to a fax that is printed out at my home office. A real-life Luddite, I say. Did I mention that I'm in IT? Eddie laughs. Well, I won't hold that against you. Thanks again for your time. But if it goes to press, you might get a call from the publisher's fact-checkers, but I'm putting the cart before the horse. If I can put a name to that killer, I'll have something I can sell, and your son's story will get heard by more than just the people who look past the coupons in the local paper. Well, if you do come up with anything, I'd love to hear about it.
Like I said, I owe the guy a thank you. Right? Horn checks his watch and rises from the table, leaving a few bills to cover the coffee. I hope things work out for you guys. We shake hands and walk out the restaurant together. He gets into a wood-paneled station wagon and waves goodbye as I walk back to the apartment. Pinky toe. Who knew? 13. I check my email when I get back. My boss has sent a friendly note reminding me that I'd better be well enough for Rebecca and me to join him and his wife for dinner this coming weekend like I promised. I assure him we will, and that I will probably be back at work by Wednesday. Might as well use the sick days that go away if I don't. I end up reading the rest of Eddie Horn's book. As a courtesy, I post a positive review on Amazon. He really is not a bad writer, and I feel sorry that he'll never find Vitaly's killer, especially if he's chasing down mob leads. I take a chance and start a private browsing session, then use an anonymous proxy to check for news on Cooper's death. There is a story on a newspaper website about the fire, attributed to an unsafe kitchen and the alleged drinking problems of the owner, who was the only victim of his apparent recklessness. By the time fire crews arrived, the establishment was reduced almost completely to ash, and Cooper had to be identified by x-rays, since he wasn't one for going to the dentist. Turns out he had some screws in his leg from a motorcycle accident when he was younger. There is no indication in the article that there is any suspicion of foul play. I continue searching. Find a photo tweeted by one of the county firefighters who responded to the call. The only thing recognizable is the steel grill where he made his famous burgers that killed Amy's family. It is littered with charred wood and covered with soot and ash. Rebecca comes home from work. I show her the article and photo. Wow, there's nothing left, she remarks. Well, that's what happens when there's not a fire department within ten miles, and no fire hydrants. This keeps on burning till it runs out of fuel. Good for us. Yes. She crosses into the bedroom and starts changing out of her work clothes. I'm going out tonight with Amy. We're going to see a movie. Oh, girls' night, she offers as an explanation for not inviting me along. Great. Say, do you remember that mob website I told you about? The one with all the details about hitmen and stuff? Sure. The guy who writes it came by today. She steps out of the bedroom, looking puzzled. Here? Why? Nick. He's doing a book on the Vitale family and thought Nick's story would make a good chapter. What did you say? Well, it didn't make sense for me to refuse, so I had lunch with him, told him about Nick and all the bullshit with the trial and that stupid ADA. He'd like to talk to you, too, if you want. I hand her the card. Sure, why not? If you think it's a good idea. I do. Just don't confess to killing Vitaly or anything. I smile, teasing. I think I can manage that. He has a theory that it was someone in the family or a rival trying to put the old man off his game. Turns out that the hitman we were trying to imitate also had a habit of cutting off the pinky toe of his victims as a souvenir. Gross. What does he do? Make a necklace out of them? Probably keeps them in a box somewhere. Or maybe he uses them as proof of death to get paid. Anyway, only the police and this horn guy knew about it, so... The theory is that there's someone who tried to make it look like it was a Vitaly hitman. Either way, the trail doesn't come anywhere close to us. That's because you are such a great criminal mastermind. She bends over and gives me a kiss. It's quick and perfunctory, void of the passionate hunger her kisses had the night before. I crave those kisses and wonder if I really only will get them if we kill someone else. Gotta go. I'll call him tomorrow. Okay, have fun. Thanks. And she's out the door. I consider going out myself, but then settle on a cable channel showing a marathon of Twilight Zone episodes. I fall asleep on the couch, 
not knowing what happens to the little old man who emerged from a bank vault to find he was the last man on earth. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddaye.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.